Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Today's extract is from Arnhem Lift by Louis Hagen. Louis Hagen was a German Jew who'd escaped Nazi Germany in the late 30s. He became a glider pilot and fought at Arnhem. Here he is on the Friday in Oosterbeek. Friday. During the morning, the first German SP gun started moving around the top crossroad. We heard the engine revving and the jerry shouting before the attack started. The immediate job was to put our Piet gun in a position where it could dominate the road and prevent the SP gun from moving down. We found an ideal place, which Jerry never spotted the whole time we were there. We decided to fire the bomb through a little hole in the roof of the attic. The noise of the tank got louder. We could hear the tracks squealing and grinding along the road. Then the first shots were fired and tore away some bricks from the front of the houses. From the wood opposite came the splutter of a heavy Spandau machine gun and a hail of light machine gun and rifle bullets came across the road. Jerry was also using small armour-piercing shells which could penetrate clean through our house. This was all preparation for the SP. Until we could see the tank coming, we used the Bren gun from our high lookout and sprayed the crossroads and the wood opposite us with continuous fire. Germans were moving about, unaware that they could be seen, and many of our bullets found their mark. Lieutenant X came up to the attic and offered to fire the Piet gun. He had just a little more experience with it than I had, as he had once fired a practice shot while I had once been shown how to load it. A wave of disgust rose in me against those petty-minded officers and sergeant majors who had wasted weeks, even months, with drill and kit inspection, making us lay out our boots, toothbrushes, knives, forks and other kit as per regulation. Why couldn't they have taught us about house-to-house fighting and the Piet gun? But then drill and lining up of beds and blankets occupies the greatest number of men with the least effort. Lieutenant X waited until we could see the tank clearly. It could not have been more than a hundred yards from us. Then he fired the first round. It was the greatest joy I had felt for a long time when we heard and saw the terrific explosion this little weapon produced, a relief which could hardly be described. To sit there waiting for the monster needed all our patience and strength for we had no idea what this little apparatus could do against it. Lieutenant X was covered with dust and thrown against the other wall by the recoil as the bomb left the piet. I had taken position next to him, ready to jump forward and look through the hole to see where it hit. The direction was perfect, but it fell about 20 yards short. The SP stopped immediately, and by the time Lieutenant X had shaken himself and got back into position, I had reloaded. We fired another four or five shots, and the Jerrys obviously couldn't decide whether it was one of our very few anti-tank guns or what, not where it came from. They were firing straight ahead and at our side of the street, but all the shells went well past us, hitting houses and trees further down. Apparently, they hadn't the faintest idea that we were only a hundred yards away, sitting with our pop gun in the attic of the nearest house. The SP retired about 50 yards, far enough to be out of our range. Now that we knew the value of our pit, we took it down into our safest back room, together with the bombs, and I continued firing the Bren gun through the hole in the roof to cover the crossroads, and make it hot for any jerry who tried to cross into the woods opposite. 
The firing and sniping went on. Suddenly it got quiet, and from our three hospital buildings on the lower crossroads, just outside our perimeter, appeared two of our jeeps with large Red Cross flags. Whatever I personally felt about the Germans, I must give them their due. In this Arnhem action, they couldn't have kept more strictly to the Geneva Convention, and this was confirmed by everyone I talked to. In a way, their behaviour was so deliberate and precise that there must have been a policy behind it. Not once did I hear of any Red Cross men or jeeps being deliberately fired on, even when they appeared on the most contested road in the midst of the heaviest fighting. There were several men I spoke to who were taken prisoner by fast-advancing tanks and whom Jerry allowed to go back to our lines with a kind of slap on the back. The work of the Red Cross personnel was wonderful. Tremendous courage and self-sacrifice is necessary to drive or walk out of hospital gates and along a road which is under fire by excited and heated troops. I was told that the casualties of the Red Cross were at least as heavy as those of the fighting men. It is difficult to see from 300 yards ahead if a man has a Red Cross armlet. Very often they couldn't be seen through our camouflage. Shooting at them by the Germans or even by our own men could not possibly be avoided. The casualties in the lower houses of our street must have been very heavy as the jeeps soon reappeared with their stretchers occupied and wounded with first aid bandages sitting on the sides. Other wounded were walking behind a Red Cross flag carried by one of the orderlies. The firing started up the moment the Red Cross party disappeared into our lines and stopped the moment they came out again. I left my post for a minute to get a relief. I wanted to see how our house had stood up to the attack and whether there had been any casualties. The situation seemed to be well in hand and we were still in possession of the corner house, though the tank had been more or less level with it when we had stopped it. The occupants told us of the relief they had felt when they saw the first Piet bomb hit the road. They thought we had damaged one of the tracks, as the SP retired in jerks as if it were out of control. It might even have been pulled back by a recovery tractor. Everyone reported that the sniping and firing was very bad, and we decided that our communications between the houses must be improved. We needed deeper and longer trenches, camouflaged with branches to allow us to dig in comparative safety. Three of us went round systematically barricading our front windows and doors. We saw the effect of hand grenades in the front rooms. Barricading was an uncomfortable job. We had to use the beautiful antique furniture, which must have been a great value to block up the windows and doors. All this stuff was going to be wrecked at the next attack. The front rooms and facades of the houses suffered each time. This job of barricading had to be redone every time we had a respite, though we never had a real respite as rifle and machine gun sniping kept on consistently and perseveringly. One got skilled in avoiding being hit, and as time went on our casualties became fewer, though we were desperately tired and thought less about personal danger. But we had acquired a kind of sixth sense and somehow did the right things automatically. In moments of half-dozing, whilst manning my attic position, I felt terribly pleased and grateful for this newly discovered ability. No one can know or can influence his reactions to great personal danger beforehand, and this feeling of pride and pleasure compensated a little for the hatefulness of the whole bloody business. I hate war. I can't stop thinking of the friends and relatives of anyone who has been hit. I know the Germans. I have seen them do the most vile and frightful things. I know that they have destroyed millions of Jews and political opponents. But I do not enjoy killing or wounding anyone. Once I'm forced to fight, however, the whole affair becomes a matter of skill and a job that needs all my powers of concentration. I no longer consider the effect it has on my opponent. We spent the rest of the morning watching carefully, trying to keep the snipers quiet and improving our position. Soon we began to feel very hungry 
and the food problem had to be seriously considered. I joined Graham in search of food. We hadn't had a single issue since we had landed. Most of us had lost our rucksacks, and those who had managed to save theirs had shared all their supplies. We were very lucky to find large stores of tinned food and provisions in the houses. I didn't know how the fellows managed to have to fight in the wooded country and fields, but we in the houses did very well. With a little bit of searching, we got the most magnificent meals together. These would have gone down well even at home. Every Dutch house has a store of food, preserves in all sorts of glass and earthenware containers. Trust the Dutch. In other houses, they were all helping themselves liberally to bottled tomatoes, French beans and other vegetables, avoiding the preserves, which had an unappetising look. We went round all the cellars asking if I could take a few preserves with me. Our expandable battle smock could harbour at least three or four of the unappetising preserves, and in my hand I carried a respectable jar. The first time I came back with my spoil, there was a general outcry, and I was told I would have to cook and eat it myself. I had the utmost difficulty in persuading some of the chaps to eat what they called continental concoctions, but I finally did persuade them that, although they looked like bottled medical specimens, they were really very good to eat, as indeed they were. Very soon, everyone was eating like mad and had completely forgotten the war, the Second Army and the Jerry Tanks. They were stuffing themselves with fried chicken, tenderloin of pork and beefsteak. We laid a fire with bricks in the middle of the kitchen floor. By this time, everyone was enthusiastic about the food and was digging for victory at the risk of their lives in the plantation. This resulted in a flare-up of German fire as they thought we were going to launch an attack. All our rich harvest was thrown into a large slop pail and cooked on the open fire. It was delicious. We felt like a rest, but the now familiar, though still ghastly sound of engines and tracks was heard again. Up dashed Lieutenant X to our beloved Piet gun, and loaded with bombs I followed him to our attic position. With the aid of binoculars, we could just see a mass of branches and trees with no movement behind it. We let go with a spray of Bren bullets to make it hot for any troops who might be hiding behind the tank or whatever was at the back of the approaching foliage. Now we knew that a lot of bullets and noise whizzing round Jerry, even if they were very inaccurate, would help us and would discourage him from any personal assault or attack. He was desperately afraid of us, and that was one of the reasons why we held out until our planned withdrawal. That and our faith in the Second Army. There were so many proofs of this fear that there could be no doubt about it. First, when I was lying in front of the German lines, and they did not dare advance or attack until their tank came. Again, when against ten of us, nearly fifty of them, in a strong position, almost gave themselves up and were only stopped by an officer. Then their constant shouting and bawling at night, for no other reason than to give themselves confidence. Also, I had an opportunity to interpret for a parachute major who did the preliminary interrogation of two German prisoners as soon as they were marched in. They belonged to the SS Panzer Grenadiers and gave us their regiment and number of units, etc. They said they had been in the army for six weeks and this was their first action. They were both about 40 and obviously had no intention of fighting anyone or for anything. They said that they knew the war was lost for Germany and when I asked them why they fought us, when it was useless, they said that they had no choice and would have been shot by their own people at the slightest sign of refusal. I heard this sort of report over and over again. If there had not been a sprinkling of first-class and fanatical officers and NCOs in this division, no fight would have been possible. But even with the present state of affairs, it was ridiculous that they did not wipe us out within a few hours. 
This panzer division, with tanks, mobile guns, flamethrowers, very close Fokkerwolf support, and the heaviest and most concentrated ak-ak seen by any of the RAF pilots, whom I met later on at the drome, and even mobile loudspeakers with trained German propagandists spouting in English, never dared to change over to direct assault or succeeded in penetrating our perimeter. No body of men, with only small arms as we had, could possibly have withstood a German panzer of the old material. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Slowly, the mass of foliage drew nearer and started to fire down the street at the lower houses. We could now see the immense tracks, and from their size we thought this was probably a self-propelled gun. We couldn't do anything for quite a long time, and even decided that it would be inadvisable to go on firing the Bren, as this might give our peer position away. Only when the SP had got to within about 100 yards of us could we be active, and that would be a godsend relief. Waiting and watching the gun approach was almost unbearable. It made a terrific noise and smoke each time it fired, and we could hear the clatter of glass and masonry whenever one of the shells hit a facade down the street. We had decided that we must try and increase the range of our bomb by elevating the pit still further, using it more or less like a mortar. Just in front of our attic were the branches of a large tree, and about a couple of yards away was the corner of the next house. Our first attempt proved pretty inaccurate, and the bomb must have hit one of the tree branches and been diverted onto the corner of the house next door, where it exploded with a terrific blast. This really shook us up badly, though mainly Lieutenant X, who was standing right behind the pit. He was flung against the back wall of the attic, and I saw him covered with dust and looking very pale, crawling towards the stairs. There was nothing seriously wrong with him, thank God. 
It was just the effect of the blast that winded and concussed him. For the moment, he didn't seem to know what had happened. He went off down the stairs, and I continued firing bomb after bomb, the old, well-and-tried way. I yelled for someone downstairs to bring up more bombs and insert the fuses. Well, we had done it again. I don't know how much we had damaged the SP, but it stopped firing and withdrew out of range, slowly and erratically. It stopped just behind the rise in the street, and I could still see it from the top of our house. But the Jerrys must have thought that any kind of anti-tank gun firing from the bottom corner couldn't see it. Men started busying themselves round it until all the top houses opened up with their stens, brens and rifles and drove them out of sight. As usual, after any kind of concentrated attack, the firing suddenly ceased when the Jerrys and we alike brought out our ambulances to collect the wounded. Now that it was quiet, the old background of rumbling artillery was audible. We never knew whether this was ours or the Germans, but liked to think it was the Second Army shelling the German rear. There were always the rapid mortar explosions, falling mainly on the perimeter in Divisional HQ, and bursts of machine gun and small arms fire. But these noises were so continuous through all the days and nights that we held this street that after a while we didn't hear anything, and everything seemed perfectly normal. We were always busy at our posts, in the trenches in front of the houses, in the attics at the windows, and in the little firing positions made by removing a brick from the outside wall. We covered all the approaches in the gardens, the street or the woods. Reliefs were fixed mostly by mutual arrangement. Food was collected and cooked in the lull between the heavy arms attacks and attempted assaults. We were now busy again patching up all the breaches in the barricades round our house. They had to be complete for the night, and everyone felt much more confident about holding out than we had done the previous night. By now, Lieutenant X had recovered from his shock, and we visited other houses making arrangements. He suggested an hour or two's nap before the inevitable intensification of activity on both sides at dusk. We went into the only still completely furnished room, called the officer's room, because in it, Captain Z, the CO who had been wounded in the arm, was usually lying in a luxurious heavy continental bed with sheets and pillowcase covered with a quilted eiderdown. He lay fully dressed in kilt, sporran, boots and beret. Full of confidence and optimism, he received everyone on his bed, and it was difficult to know how far he realised the danger of our position. In addition to Captain Z, there were usually a few other officers, men from the other houses, making plans and decisions in a nonchalant way. Only once during the whole action did I hear any one of the officers really lose his temper, and that was when trying to wake up the Sergeant Major, who had his HQ under the best table. It took me several visits to the officer's room to discover him, since the huge lace tablecloth which overhung a purple velvet cover hid him rather effectively. And that was exactly what the Sergeant Major wanted. His aggressive nature on the parade ground and in the barracks had changed entirely, and he did not want people to notice. Everybody did, of course, know about it, but nobody could do anything, and in any case there were plenty of us who could do his job. Nobody could escape the spell of this room. The shutters were closed, and the candlelight, bed, couch and easy chairs gave it such a homely atmosphere. It needed great willpower to leave this room and carry on with any job. But at least it made you feel that somewhere there was still peace and homeliness. Lieutenant X and I had our nap on some cushions on the floor in a position that was safe against sniping or blast. It was now dusk and everyone was mobilised for the stand-to. The supper was simmering in the pail and the chaps came down as each was relieved to have a plate of hot stew and some delicious preserved fruit with sweet condensed milk the winter rations of the Dutch people. I was having my supper when Lieutenant X came into the kitchen and said, would I come to the officer's room? I took my plate and went in. 
Captain Z, had just seen the brigadier and our own colonel and had been asked to send patrols out to discover the assembly point of the German armour, which was harassing our section, and to find out which of the houses at the end of our street opposite the top corner house were occupied by Germans. They asked me if I would like the job and how I would tackle it. I thought it best to take as few people with me as possible, as the important thing was to get near Jerry undetected. One chap to be with me the whole time, and a small group waiting on the other fringe of the plantation, where I would cross into Jerryland to give me covering fire, in case I should run into trouble and have to withdraw quickly. I now had to find someone to come with me, and I thought immediately of Sergeant Graham. He had taken a lot of pains and responsibilities far above his rank, and seemed more or less to have the same ideas about the situation as I had. I brought him into the officer's room and we discussed our plan. We were going out on three patrols at 10, 12 and 2 o'clock on three different points of the plantation. Next we had to go searching for civvy shoes or running shoes and clean our sten guns and ammo. We slept until half past nine when we were supposed to meet our covering party, which Mr T had offered to supply from his corner house. We never met this party. I don't know what happened or where it waited for us but we were much too impatient to go searching for it and stumbling about giving away our position and intentions. We crossed the plantation over the street to the next block of houses, slowly tiptoeing in the shadow of the houses. Sergeant Graham stayed about 20 yards behind me, following up every time I stopped for any length of time. German voices became audible now, and we could hear engines running. They seemed to be manoeuvring their transport and armour. Then we heard Germans walking through gardens. We lay just where we were. We began to distinguish a general movement from right to left. The German transport was moving to a point about a mile away, screened by small detachments moving parallel to them. We tried to get nearer the machines, but unfortunately we ran into a body of the enemy who immediately opened up on us, even though I'm sure they couldn't have seen us. We decided that we had better withdraw this time and try to get farther on our next patrol. We now had some idea of the lie of the land up to where we had to withdraw, That would save us a lot of time at 12 o'clock. Besides, we were supposed to cross into our own lines at half past ten, as our men had been given that time for our return and told to hold their fire. Now for a sleep, and by 12 o'clock we were ready once more. The troops covering the lines we had to cross were warned. We had realised that we must have longer for this patrol, so our time limit to get back was extended from 12 to 1.30. We crossed over as quietly as possible and worked our way through the maze of the back gardens, among outhouses, shrubs and orchards. Soon we had passed far beyond the place where we had met the German patrol before. The talking was more distant now. We made slow and very careful progress. It was pretty nerve-wracking, worming our way along, silently stopping every few minutes to listen for German footsteps and noises, which were to be heard now at much longer intervals. We could hear a more or less continuous noise of spades digging, and this was the direction we took. The noise led us to a thick, clipped hedge, and we tried to wriggle through, but we got stuck again and again by our sten guns and things catching in the dense undergrowth. Then we found a square tunnel cut right underneath the hedge, through which we crawled. We emerged into a large open space, bounded on one side by the hedge and on the other by what looked like the outbuildings of a big country house. In the middle of the space were two immense oak trees with circular benches round their boles path ran up for about a hundred feet, and at the top we saw the silhouettes of two Germans digging and whispering monotonously. They looked quite unreal, as if they were standing on the walls of some fairy castle. 
This hill was not marked on any of our maps, and we had had no knowledge of its existence. Here, obviously, was the German strongpoint. From it, they sent out troops and vehicles to dominate our position from the woods and houses opposite. We now realised that they occupied these houses and the wood during the daytime and withdrew their men and vehicles into this strongpoint at night. At the moment, it looked much more like a fairy castle. Graham thought it would be a good idea to kill the two Jerrys up there. They were less than a 100 yards away. But our withdrawal through the gardens and orchards was going to be difficult in any case, and from their dominating position, they would be able to plaster us with hand grenades, so I thought it not worth the risk, as our information might be of great importance. When we got back, we were surprised to find it was well after two. We were glad to think that we now had a good excuse not to go on the third patrol. We got through our own lines without being accosted. Either everyone was fast asleep, or perhaps they were waiting for us. In our cosy officer's room, we were surprised and rather touched to find that they hadn't all completely passed out, but were really quite anxious about us and our long stay. Under normal conditions, our report would have been of immense value. For now, we could pinpoint the German position accurately on a map for artillery and mortar fire. But then we realised that as we had no mortars or artillery, there was nothing we could do about it, although it was interesting from a military point of view. It was valuable, however, to know that Jerry left his houses every night and retired to safe, prepared positions. Obviously, the men refused to spend the night so near the British lines. That was a compliment. If only we'd had the men... We could have given the Germans a lovely surprise by infiltrating into their houses and establishing ourselves there by dawn. Still, Captain Zed must have been pleased and attached quite a bit of importance to our report, for he condescended to sit up in bed, twirl his handsome moustache and say, Well done, chaps. Good show. You've got to see the brigadier tomorrow. Graham and I gathered up some cushions and blankets from the floor, found a corner and passed out until stand two at dawn.